Psalm 119. It's amazing how just those little things are what you kind of get used to. You just look and get the same response from people. Psalm 119. Up until this point, I, I think I've preached on every single verse um, in each section. Normally, I haven't taken just a verse out here or there and just focused on that one verse. Normally, it's been a, a pattern of where you start at the top and you work down and you see how they all work together. But as I was studying this passage, I, I couldn't help but just go to just two verses. So we're just going to really be in two verses today and we're going to hit on one or the other. But really, the main thrust of the message is going to come out of two verses out of Psalm 119, 65 through 72. I sent out an email yesterday and just encouraged you to read the passage and then look in the passage and figure out where the clear presentation of the gospel was or is. And it's, it's, it's not a presentation of the gospel as in you're an unbeliever and how to come to Christ. It's really a presentation, presentation of the gospel to the believer upon every aspect and circumstance of life and how to take the gospel and the truth that is there and apply it to your daily circumstances. So that's where we're going this morning, is essentially what we're going to do is see, and our main two verses we're going to focus on are 67 and 68. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Those two verses, we're going to go into those verses and see that God is good. He's doing good in your life to bring you into greater fellowship with him. And that's the gospel, that God is good and he's doing good in your life to bring you in closer fellowship with him. So that's a message. That's what we're going after. But now we've got to back up. So let's go to 1 Timothy. We want to set the, set the stage, so to speak, for these two verses to speak into our life. First Timothy 6. First Timothy 6, verse 11. 11 and 12. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, and these things are everything that came prior to 11 and 12. You see that in 3 through 10. There's a long list, a laundry list there of things that were to flee. So flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the fight of faith, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Every single day that we wake up, we are in a battle for faith. To hold fast to the faith. Notice that's what Timothy saw, or Paul is telling Timothy here. It's not talking about just some faith. It's the faith. We're in a battle for the faith every day to live it out in our lives. If you studied the Truth Project or you went through that presentation, you know... That what they talk about there is you're in a day, you are in a battle every single day for truth, not just to know the truth, but you're also in a battle to believe the truth. And then you're also in a battle to act out the truth. And you wrestle this every single day. John Piper gives the example of him waking up in the morning 
And he says, there's war going on in the Piper household. And it's not necessarily a war between relationships. It's not at all. It's a war between the old man and the new man. And the old man gets out of bed. And he may not want to get out of bed. So there's the first battle. The second battle is he may want to go to something other than the word first. Let's go check the sports scores. Let's go check, as he says, my Twitter feed. Let's go check Facebook. Let's eat breakfast. Whatever it is, there's all these competing things that we have to battle for. And we don't feel like doing anything but doing those things. And that's where the war comes in. You've got to battle that for that faith and you've got to go to the word first. That's what Piper uses as an example here. So with the fact, we've got to have a battle mentality. We've talked about this before. We've got to have a battlehood mentality that we are in this fight every single day. And so that gives us a better frame of mind to approach the day, that we're going to be bombarded on every side. We're going to have lies that come against us. So with that in mind, then you go back to Psalm 119. We're in the battle. And remember here, Psalm 119, 67 and 68, we're talking about the believer. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good, God is good, and does good. Teach me your statutes. So the first thing we've got to realize, and I've got three points in this before I get to really the practical side of this. There's three points. One is, we are going to go astray. We see that. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Christians will go astray. We could term it biblically as backsliding. And that's a biblical term. Let's go to Proverbs 14, 14. Proverbs 14, 14, the backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways and a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. The backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways and a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-three. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Now, can an unbeliever backslide? No. An unbeliever cannot backslide because he is dead in sin. There's no backsliding to be done because he hasn't gone anywhere yet, so there's nowhere for him to go. Can a believer backslide? Yes. Believers are the only ones who can backslide. Now, You can't backslide out of salvation. As you know the phrase, if your faith fizzles at the finish, it was faulty at the first. If if it didn't carry all the way through, then you didn't have it originally in the first place. We didn't have the true faith. But if you have true faith, you can't backslide out of salvation. But you can fall away. You can go down a slippery slope. Octavius Winslow, an old uh, reformer, some of you may have heard of him, says this. If there is one consideration more humbling than any other to a spiritually minded believer, it is, after all, God has done for him. So many, meaning after everything that God has done for us, after all the rich displays of his grace, the patience and tenderness of his instructions, the repeated discipline of his covenant, the tokens of love received and the lessons of experience learned, there should still exist in the heart of principle, the tendency, which is to secret, perpetual and alarming departure from God. We have a secret, as he says, perpetual, alarming departure from God. We like to slide even in the face of God's goodness, his blessing, his grace, his mercy to us. Robert Owen Roberts wrote a book called Revival, and in it he gives 25 points that you might look at to see whether or not you're backsliding. I'm not going to read all 25, but I'm going to read a few of them. Number one, 
When prayer ceases to be a vital part of a professing Christian's life, backsliding is present. Number two, when the biblical knowledge possessed or acquired is treated as external fact and not applied inwardly, backsliding is present. Remember, we have this tendency to go astray. We have the old flesh. When sins of the body and of the mind can be indulged in without an uproar in your conscience, your backslidden condition is certain. When you can mouth religious songs and words without heart, be sure backsliding is present. When you can hear the Lord's name taken in vain, spiritual concerns mocked and eternal issues flippantly treated and not be moved to indignation in action, you are backslidden. When breaches of peace in the brotherhood are of no concern to you, that is proof of backsliding. When there is no music in your soul and no song in your heart, the silence testifies to your backsliding. When injustice and human misery exist around you and you do little or nothing to relieve the suffering, be sure you are backslidden. When you find yourself rich in grace and mercy and marvel at your own godliness, then you have fallen far in your backsliding. And there's many more points. I read that list and sent it out to a few of the guys in Infire, and just there's just a ton of conviction there because you start to wonder, well, am I I'm backsliding? And and wow. First two, first three, first four. How is this? I hope we're grading on a percentage scale. I hope we're grading on a sliding scale. But that's not the case. My tendency, according to Scripture, because I have I battle that old flesh because we're in a fight. My tendency is to go astray. It's a natural tendency. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. We're fighting not to go astray. That's point number one. We have a strong tendency to go astray. Number two from the text is affliction is good. You see this. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good. Therefore, affliction is good because affliction is what brings us out of going astray. And you see that the psalmist has learned this in 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Affliction is good, and affliction comes from without, and it comes from within. As a believer, it comes from without, and it comes from within. It may come from out in the fact that uh, a brother in Christ pulls you aside and says, "Uh uh-uh, you're walking in sin. You have got a blind spot here and lovingly rebukes you and pulls you back in. Affliction could come from without in the form of suffering. That uh, something has happened to your family and you're going through a difficult time. Financially, physical health, relationships, vocation, location, all these different things. Affliction can come from different ways, but... And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going astray, but if you are going astray, God in his goodness uses that affliction to bring you back to him, back to his word. Number three. If number one is we have a strong tendency, strong tendency to go astray, number two is affliction is good and comes from without and from within. Number three is God is good and doing good. You see this in 68. You are good, meaning God, and do good. Teach me your statutes. This is really the text I want to get to because this, those two verses are the gospel. Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology, Mark Kroslavsky has already spoken on this, but he talks about God's goodness, and this is the definition he gives. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. We know that God is good. 
Let's go to some scripture. Psalm 105. Just go back a few verses, a few chapters. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. We're encouraged to taste of that goodness in Psalm 34, 8. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Prove Him. Let him, be, let him prove Himself. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Psalm 106, verse 1. Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. 107, Psalm 107, verse 1. O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And we can go to a lot of other scriptures. There's many in the New Testament that profess to God's goodness. Notice, though, in verse and Psalm 106, verse 1, Psalm 107, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. As I said in first light, God's goodness, love is what flows out of God's goodness. Because unless He's good, there's no hatred for sin. And, and holiness mixes in with that. And if there's no hatred for sin, there's no goodness contrary to God's, contrary to sin, then there's no need for love to give us a Savior. It flows there. You see that. For He is good for His steadfast love endures forever. God is good, but not only is He good, Psalm 119, you are good and do good. So everything that God is doing is good. All that God does and is doing is good. Let's go to Genesis 1. And God saw, verse 31, Genesis one thirty-one. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. All that God does and is doing is good. And not only is God good and is He doing good, all good comes from God. And that begs the question, what is good? Well, Grudem again gives the definition that good is what God approves. Because God is the ultimate standard of good, anything that God approves of would therefore be turned as good. So what good is coming from God? Let's go to James. James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good gift from, comes from God. We know Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. A verse that we rarely go to is 32, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how He will not also with us with Him graciously give us all things. God is giving us good things. 
They may not be necessarily in the form of the way we like them, but we can know that as a good God who is doing good things, He's going to give us good things. A few more verses. Acts fourteen seventeen. Acts fourteen seventeen. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And one of my favorite verses, Matthew seven eleven. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God is good, he's doing good, and all good comes from God. And we know that good, we know what good is, and that is whatever is acceptable or whatever that God approves. Go back to Psalm 119. I want to set up the practical application here. Sixty-seven. But I, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are do good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Okay. So the good news of the gospel is that God has brought us from death to life, and we know this in Ephesians, Ephesians two. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, but God in His riches and richness and mercy. We know these verses. So God is moving us from death to life. Or from the old man to the new man. He is moving us from the bondage of sin and death to life in him. And freedom in him. This is the goodness. This is the gospel. that We know these things. But rarely do we take that principle, that understanding. At least I have the tendency to rarely take that principle and understanding. And apply it to my daily life. In... A book we're reading for In Fire is called uh, Speaking the Truth in Love by David Pallison. He talks about thinking globally and acting locally. You know the gospel. There's the global aspect of it. But how do you take one tidbit or one piece of truth of that gospel and apply it to one area of your life? And that's really what counseling is, is you're taking whatever that one problem is you you have in your life and finding the one piece of truth and connecting them. And we'll get into specifics, but you're anxious, find the verses of anxiety, against anxiety. Find the goodness of God in the gospel and apply it to that one aspect of your life. That's essentially what you're doing. And that's what we're called to do as we walk through our lives and we come come into affliction or we're going astray, we come into affliction. It could be your conscience pricking you. You realize you're going astray and you go, I'm going this way. What's that one bit of truth? From the gospel that applies to here. And you connect the points. And that leads you in God's goodness back to him. You see that in 67. But now I keep your word. There's this turning that happened there. We so often focus on the don'ts. We so often are on the defensive. We so often are on stopping the old man. And all that's good. We so often say. Well you go to scripture and God says. Do not do this thing. And don't worry. And don't think a lustful thought. And don't have pride. And this pile of don'ts. And, and so then we're on the defensive. We get attacked. We get afflicted. The enemy's coming. 
we're under this temptation and we just pile on the, I won't do this, I won't do this, I won't do this, I won't do this. But we're, we're missing half the gospel. Because he didn't just save us from the do nots. He moved us to the do's. And we get stuck over here in the I just won't do this. Rather than seeing how the gospel brings us over here and, and shows you what you can do. He saved us from a law of sin and death and he's moved us over here. Let's go to Colossians 2. Colossians 2.20. It's wonderful to be on the don'ts. That's entirely true and according to the gospel. And we need to focus on being on the defensive and fight and all of these things. That's good. But we can't just stop there. We have to move over. And this is, this is you see this in Colossians 2.20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirit of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So you can hang out on the do-nots all you like, but they're not going to win the day for you because it's not the entire gospel. It has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, it has a value... You've got to start there, but you've got to move from there. And we rarely move from there to where we need to go. Let's go to one more verse before we we close in on what we need to do. Matthew 12. This is one more example here in Scripture, a parable by Christ of a man who was on the do-nots, Meaning he, he did the he was not doing something, meaning he was doing the right thing by not doing something, but he didn't move to doing something else in its place. And you see that, uh, Matthew twelve, forty three. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. So this person There's been a removal of a stronghold out of their life, but nothing good was put in its place. He didn't do anything else, and the spirit comes back. Then it goes and brings with itself, brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. So we can't just stop acting like the old man. We have to start acting like the new man. You can't just be on the defensive, you have to go on the offensive. You can't just do the do-nots. You have to move over to the do's. I said one more chapter, but I'm going to go to one more. Romans 7. Romans 7, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Verse 5 of Romans 7. For while we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which has held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Now, 
Does that mean the law has no purpose? No, we know that the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Not only is it a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ initially in the first work of salvation there, we're coming from death into life, but also it can be a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ and bring conviction to our hearts when we're in a strait. It can be a term, it can be an aspect of that affliction that brings us back to Christ. Luke Becker shared an analogy that I thought was just great for this. When you're learning to drive and you're driving down the road and you want to make a lane change and you've got all those little yellow or white things that are stacked in the middle lanes and you always hit them as you go over. Well, what's the best way not to hit them? Well, if you focus on don't hit them, don't hit them, don't hit them. I see them, I see them. You're going to hit them every single time. But if you focus on the spaces in between, you won't hit it. Try it. Driving down the road, I'm going to change lanes. I don't want to hit those little things to go ba-bump, ba-bump. Focus on the spaces in between, and you can make it. You can go right through, and you won't hit them. And really what we're talking about here is we, we oftentimes miss the focus. We're focusing on the don'ts because we want to honor God. We want to walk before Him. But we rarely move to the, the do's. We rarely move over here. And let's give some practical examples to that. Number one, we've got to realize that this is a battle. We've talked about this at the very beginning, but I left out a word in 1 Timothy 6, 11, and 12, and that is that it is a good fight for faith. We normally just say this is a fight for faith, but it is a good fight for faith. So how does the truth of the gospel help in that daily fight? If you think or subconsciously think that when you go to Scripture... Or when you study God's way, all you're getting is God says, don't do this, Cody. Don't do this. Don't do that. It's going to kill. You know, you go almost to scripture with a subconscious thought of this is going to kill all my fun. I'm not going to be able to enjoy things because I'm just going to have to not do things. You're missing God's goodness. Because if you go back to you are good and do good and everything that is everything that is truly good comes from God then you've got to realize that his word is good and it doesn't stop at just the do nots. Really, what the do nots are are just a signpost on the road of life to show you where the good is because he is good. Let me give some practical examples of this. Uh, Matthew six thirty four. We so often approach Scripture with, just don't do these things. We rarely see these do-nots or God's law or God's word who's admonishing us to not do something. We rarely see them as opportunities not to miss out on something, but to get what is good. And I'm going to hopefully try to prove this here. Psalm 634. I'm sorry, Matthew 634. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. There's the do not. Don't be anxious. But go back up in the, in the chapter there. 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But, here's the do, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added into you. So we rarely think of stop being anxious because that's impeding us from seeking first the kingdom of God. We can go to uh, being anxious. uh, Scripture says be anxious for nothing, but in everything give thanks. Why? For this is the will of God. 
So we rarely, we always just go, well, don't be anxious. I'm not supposed to be anxious. Rather than saying, if I don't be anxious, I can know the will of God from the goodness of God because he is good. We've got to move over here. Another one, the battle for moral purity. And there's obviously statistics that this is no longer just uh, a guy fight. This is a, something that the ladies struggle with as well. We're battling for moral purity, to have a, a mind that is pure, to have a body that is pure. And what does Scripture say? Don't do this. Don't commit the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Don't look with a man. Don't look at a man. Don't look at a woman with lust in your heart. That's the wrong thing to do. And we so we fight. No, I won't do that. But we rarely see what God also says about that, which is, no, this is a beautiful thing in God's perfect timing inside of marriage. And even if it's not marriage, look to, look to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If you serve a loving, good God... He's not just telling you, don't do these things. And it's not as if he doesn't know how hard it is. He's saying, don't do these things because there's something so much better. And in me, whether it's in in marriage or whether it's in marriage because you are the bride of Christ. And and we see Christ is the the bridegroom. Whatever analogy you want to use, in Christ there is no want. There is good things, and it's fully fulfilled. There is nothing that outside of God, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, that you can want or that you will need, that will give you pleasure and happiness. Mark Brzezowski talked about this in the first, in the first, in first light, the blessedness of God. There's nothing outside of God that will give us happiness because he is blessed. God is good. We've got to go back to Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. You've got to approach Scripture every single day with the understanding that you are going to a God who is good, doing good. All good things come from Him. And therefore, anything in Scripture that He's giving you is for your good. And there is something far better that He's trying to move you to. He's not just telling you, don't do something you can have ammunition, you can have offensive weapons by going to the end of Scripture and saying, not only am I not supposed to do this, I can do this. This is far more wonderful. You can claim Psalm 23 and realize that if I do these things, I shall not want because he is my shepherd and they're coming from him. Let's go to Romans 8. In closing here, let's go to Romans 8. God is alive. His word is alive. We can't approach scripture as a dusty tome. We've got to claim the truth, even if we don't feel like it in the battle, to do what we're supposed to do. And know that because he is good, it will work out good. Romans 8. I'm going to just read the first 11 verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness 
righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Christ is alive and well. He is working for your good. He is willing to bring out of love for you a difficulty in your life to draw you closer to Him. And in that battle every single day to do not just the knots, but to move and do what He wants you to do, even if you don't feel like it, at the very core of that battle, you've got to believe God is good. He is doing good and all good things that are truly good come from him because that may be the last thing that you could hold on to to force yourself to go to the word first as john piper says instead of your twitter feed to think the right thought instead of the wrong thought because you've got to at the at the very core of your nature believe god is who he says he is and he says he is good and all good things flow from him from that goodness flows his love from that goodness flows his mercy from that goodness flows his grace Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come once again to you and we thank you for the time that we've been able to be in your word. And I just plead that your word may have spoken clearly that in the daily fight for faith to honor you to obey you, to please you, that we would understand that you are good. The ultimate standard of good and that your word is good and that daily we would believe that going into your word, desiring to not just know why you tell us not to do something, but that we would understand that those are simply signpost to help us understand where to find the ultimate good, where to find pleasure, where to find happiness that is nestled in your arms. You are a loving Heavenly Father who desires to give good gifts. Father, I thank you for affliction, whether it's from without or from within, that your goodness your good love is so immense that you are willing to discipline us, to convict us, to bring loving brothers and sisters in Christ alongside us, to bring circumstances and events into our life, to get perspective on a relationship with you. It's so easy, Lord, to be clouded in our thinking about what is truly important. And yet affliction and difficulty oftentimes 
break through that cloud and allow us to see what is truly important, which is that we have a good and loving Heavenly Father working in our lives for your glory. Father, I would ask and pray that you would help us in the daily battle this week, each one of us. To realize that your way is good and that daily we would get up and choose to walk in your way regardless of whether we desire to do it, regardless of in our finite minds it even seems wise to do it, or fun to do it, or pleasurable to do it, but that we would do it out of love for you and a belief in the truth. Father, I thank you for your grace and mercy that extends far beyond our sin, covers us, gives us strength to each day, walk in a way that is pleasing and worthy of the gospel. Father, we ask and pray now that as we would go to a time of prayer, that you would prick our hearts, draw us, convict us, show us where we are going astray, our natural tendency, that we might might repent and come back into a closer fellowship with you. And Father, each one of us, we're sinners saved from our sin, but we have that sinful tendency there and each one of us are going astray in some small area and we fight against that and and open our eyes that we might know how to keep our heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life to curb those areas and to bring them back in repentance to you. Thank you for this time in the word. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.